a longer scripture reading, but hopefully the connection between the passages will become clear as we walk through them. For some of you, this may not be distant. For others of us, it's been a while. But do you remember those reading comprehension exercises you had to do in school? They'd ask you questions, you'd read something, and then they'd say, which friend told Billy about the soccer game being canceled? And you'd have to think back and say, oh, it was his friend Dave. And then a question might be, well, why did this matter for the story? And maybe it was because Billy was going to walk a mile to the soccer game, but his friend saved him a lot of trouble because he let him know the game was canceled, so he was a good friend. Or maybe it was something else. You had to pay attention to the details of the story to see why it mattered. It's possible that you and I could get stuck on an unrelated point in a moment like that, and we could say something like, oh, well, walking along the side of the road is dangerous, and why did his parents let him do that? And, and that's not really the point, and that's not going to help you get the right answer on the uh, question about the story. It's not what it was asking. Maybe in math class, you had a story problem, and they would say, Jan had 13 cats, two dogs, and a parakeet, and she spent $40 a month on cat food and $50 a month on dog food and $7.50 a month on bird seed. How much money did she spend on food for mammals? If you got distracted about parakeets and whether or not you like parakeets, again, that doesn't really help you answer the question, and that information is really irrelevant to getting at the right answer, we could potentially miss the point in a situation like that. You say, well, if I'm reading a story and have to answer questions about it, I'm going to answer it based on the story. And if I'm doing a math problem, I'm going to ignore the parts that don't help me answer the math problem because I'll get the wrong answer. But when it comes to the Bible or spiritual conversations, it's possible for us to do something that we don't do in normal daily life, and we fixate on a particular word or phrase and pull it out of its context and just sort of take it and run with it. Uh, for example, Paul or Peter or David might be talking about a particular subject, but we might grab on to something that they've said and, and, and go a completely different direction than what the whole point was that was being made. Let me give you some examples of some verses where we might tend to do this, and then from 1 Timothy we'll see why this matters, why it is important. Uh, from 1 Timothy 2, which came up in our uh, Wednesday night discussion on the subject of prayer and uh, the part in Jesus' prayer where we are uh, praying. Um, let me turn over there to Matthew 6 and read you the section. But uh, Matthew 6 in uh, Jesus' prayer, um, it talks about things like forgiving us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil and all of these sorts of things. And then 1 Timothy 2, Paul builds on that idea of prayer, and he says, pray for kings and all of those who are in authority. And so we just finished going through that book on Wednesday nights. And in 1 Timothy 2, there was this phrase, and it said something about God desires all people to be saved. And when you come to a passage like that, it's easy for people who have been in church or thought about those sorts of things to start immediately jumping into questions like, what does that mean God desires all people to be saved? Is everybody going to end up in heaven? Is he only talking about a very small group of people? Uh, and, and get into those sorts of discussions. But what is that passage actually talking about? Paul is showing God's attitude towards sinners of compassion and grace and patience and all of those sorts of things. And he is calling his people to have that same attitude. 
From Second Peter, uh, when we were studying through that in church a few months ago, we saw the phrase, Lot's righteous soul was troubled. And if you're familiar with the story of Lot in the Old Testament, that immediately raises questions for you, because Lot was not a great guy. He moved into a city away from his uncle who was following God, and he got involved in a bunch of things in the city, and he is basically leaving the city as God's judgment is raining fire from the sky down on it. And we say, was Lot really righteous? And all of those sorts of questions. How could he be hanging out with wicked men and making terrible decisions and still be considered righteous? But what's Peter's point? In that passage, Peter is actually saying this. God punishes the wicked. The ancient world drowned in the flood because every thought of their hearts was evil continually. Sodom and Gomorrah burned because of their various sins against God. But God spares the righteous, and in that category, he puts Noah and Lot. And so the passage says, if that's the case, he'll punish false teachers and spare those who keep walking after God. It's another passage, 2 Samuel 12, 23. And uh, it might not seem like it's connected to the first two, but all of these touch on the subject of, of salvation and walking with God. There is a scenario in which David was the king and he commits adultery with a beautiful woman that he sees when he should have been out fighting in the battle, leading his men into a war. He was staying at home, being idle, sees a woman lust after her, seeks her out, commits adultery with her, tries to have her husband killed. They end up having a baby. And God strikes that baby with sickness. And David pleads with God to spare the baby's life. And then, after the baby dies, David stops grieving, dresses himself, and goes about his business. And his, the people around him are confused by his actions. You were, you were grieving terribly before he dies, and now you're not. What happened? And there's a simple phrase there where it says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I know this question came up in the teen group, this, this question of, what happens to babies when they die? Does every baby go to heaven and all those sorts of things? Or even the broader question, if there's someone who doesn't seem to have the opportunity or the mental capacity to express faith in God, can that person end up in heaven? And that's a question to consider, but that's not the point of what David is saying. What David is saying is, I sinned, here are the consequences, I asked God to be gracious and spare the consequences, he said no, was I going to submit to his will or not? What do we do when God says no to our prayers? And then a final passage from Matthew 6. There's this phrase right after the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's easy to wonder if Jesus means that not forgiving means we can lose our salvation. And can we lose our salvation? Does this connect to the unpardonable sin that's mentioned in another place in the Gospels? But in context, what was Jesus doing? He was teaching the disciples how to pray, one aspect of which was to forgive as, uh, that, uh, forgive us as we have forgiven others. He seems to be making the point that John would later make in 1 John, that if we hate our brother and do not forgive him, how does God's love really dwell in us? We could look at many more examples, but the point I'm making is this. Don't miss the point of what God is saying. Don't get distracted by arguments over things that are not the point that's being made in a particular passage of Scripture. And beware of the temptation to take individual verses out of their context to, to sort of build an idea of how the world works 
that it ends up being contrary to what God has said overall because instead of saying, here's what God is saying to me in this verse, we've said, well, here's how it maybe connects to all these other things and we go off on, on tangents and into error. Why does this matter? Why is it a big deal? You say, all right, there's verses in the Bible, people argue about them, why should I care? First Timothy draws a link between arguing about words, misunderstanding what God has said, and the danger of ending up on a path, the end of which is false teaching and wandering away from God. Now, not everybody reaches the end of that path, but we can take steps down that way depending on the attitude toward what God has said and how we use it and how we respond to it. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7 through 7 was the first passage that we read. And Paul said this to Timothy, basically. Don't uh, he says, teach people toward love. Teach people toward love. What does this look like? Well, first of all, it looks like not teaching lies or half-truths. He talks about strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies in verses 3 and 4. Lies are false gospels. In Paul's day, a false gospel was something like the idea, here is someone who wasn't of Jewish background, who never followed all the things with the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. And then someone comes along and says, hey, if you want to really follow after God, you've got to do all this stuff too that God commanded the people of Israel to do. And then you can actually be a follower of God. And Paul says very clearly in the book of Galatians, no, that is a false gospel because Jesus has fulfilled the law on your behalf. That was something that God gave for the Israelites to do. And so someone who says, we're going to go back and try to do something Jesus has already done that he never commanded this group of people to do, that is adding to what God has said. What does that look like today? Well, sometimes it looks like leaving out parts of things that God is. So, for example, our society emphasizes the idea that God is love. And is that true? The Bible does say that. But God is love is set in the context of all the other things that are true about God. God is holy, God is powerful, God knows all things. It's not as though God is love is the only thing that's true about God. And what's the danger of going that direction? Well, if we pick out one thing that we think is true about God and we ignore all the rest of the things, then we start to get way off course. Or perhaps we see the idea that Jesus said some things that he called people to do. He said, for example, when in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. So if we latch onto that one phrase and we say, well, that's the only thing that's true, and people have done this all throughout history. Thomas Jefferson did this, Ben Franklin did this, a whole bunch of people since then have said, you know what? We like the fact that Jesus said moral things and how to live. We're going to follow that part of it, but we're going to ignore everything else. And you can't ignore everything else because not only did Jesus say, here are things that God calls you to do, but he said, I am God. And he can't be a good teacher if he's claiming to be God and he's just a man. And so we shouldn't be following any of his teachings. We can't just say, well, we'll take this part of it. There are many other false gospels. There is, uh, there is the false gospel that's popular among um, a lot of professing Christian groups that basically says, hey, Jesus has forgiven all your sins, so do whatever you want. It's already taken care of. So if it's already paid for, 
might as well take advantage of it. And Paul says in correcting that error in the book of Romans, does God have more grace when we sin more? Absolutely. Does that mean that we sin more to get more of God's grace? Absolutely not. So Paul told Timothy to be in this place and to reprove those who are teaching lies, false gospels. He also said to teach them not to pay attention to half-truths or disputed matters. These are things that couldn't be proven that led to arguments and disunity. For example, in 2 Timothy 4.4, those who reject sound doctrine turn to myths. What does that look like for us today? Well, let's say that you meet somebody who says, I don't believe in Jesus. And then that person also says, here's the things that I believe about the Bible, and those things aren't true. Or they quote a Bible reference, and they give the wrong verse. Or they... Um, are doing things the Bible clearly says are sinful. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, the solution to that is to latch on to the thing that they're saying or doing wrong. I had a friend one time who I was trying to tell about Jesus, and he wanted to get into this discussion of whether ghosts were real, because he said, I lived in this house in Germany, and I saw a ghost, and if I stopped and argued with him about whether or not ghosts are real, we're not getting to the main point, which is, here is Jesus. Do you know him? Are you going to follow him? What did this look like throughout history? Well, there was a guy named Charles Spurgeon, and when he was preaching uh, over 100 years ago, um, there were people who were arguing about something called the gap theory. They said, all right, Genesis 1-1 says, in the, beginning was the uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse says, the world, became, the world was formless and void. And they said, well, maybe it's not was, maybe it was became formless and void. And they invent this entire theory of how the world was in this gap that doesn't exist between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. You say, well, why would people do that? It is really easy for us to say, what God has said is not enough, what he's told us to do is not enough, Let's come up with all these other things and focus on them instead of what God has actually said. And what is the end result of that? Well, it says in verse 4, it gives rise to mere speculation, and in the other passages, we'll see that it leads to endless arguments and disunity. Paul says to Timothy, in contrast to missing the point by being led astray by false gospels, Here's the way to God. Nope, I'm going to go over here instead. Or half-truths. Here's one thing that's true about God, but we're going to mix it with a lot of error and argue about it. Here's what you're supposed to do. He says, teach with the goal of love. The goal of our instruction, verse 5, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is a life of walking with God that is produced by God and then cultivated by God's people as they walk with him. What's the alternative? The alternative is pointless discussion and teaching from ignorance with the goal of pride. It says, verse 6, Some men strained from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You ever met somebody who's really certain that they're right and have no idea what they're talking about? You encounter this a lot with people who do uh, different things like with home repair or those sorts of things and DIY is great but we bought a house recently and the people who did the DIY clearly weren't watching the right videos on how to, how to do the things 
And, but they were really confident that they knew what they were doing. So there's walls that aren't straight or tile that's crooked or different things like that. What does that look like in our spiritual lives? It looks like someone who has a very superficial understanding of what the Bible says, who gets up and says, I'm going to tell you what the Bible is about. And then it leads to fruitless discussion and arguments. Instead of the goal being love, the goal is this, pride. I want to show you what I know. I'll give you an example of this. I was over in Madison Heights probably about a year ago, and I was getting food from a restaurant, a takeout order, and I ran into a guy in the line there. I didn't even know what I said to him. And he got off on this thing about how churches shouldn't meet on Sunday and how he had studied Greek and all these sorts of things. And, and I'm not saying that you can't know anything about that if you haven't been to seminary, all those sorts of things. Um, but he worked for an IT place next door and like that was his expertise. But he was like, but I know all these things about the Bible and all this sort of thing. And he just really wanted to show me all the things that he knew. And then he wanted me to agree with him and tell him he was right and sort of say, yes, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you know all this stuff, I should listen to you. There's two attitudes when it comes to what God has said. I want to know God better and, and call people alongside me to know God better with me in humility and with the goal of love so that they draw closer to God. And then there's this attitude over here that says, I want to show you what I know so you can tell me that I know it and so that I can feel good that I know it. And that's the second attitude that Paul is warning against here. He says the goal of knowing the Bible is knowing what God has said, but not so you can say, I'm right, you're wrong, not so you can say, I'm better than you, but so that we would walk in love with one another. So what's the first test of whether we're missing the point from 1 Timothy? Does our conversation about God, about the Bible, about spiritual things, does it lead to love and unity around what God has actually said? Or does it lead to proud self-confidence about our own ideas? We're going to now look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, I think, is saying this point, along the same lines of missing the point. Watch out for those who are holier than God. Watch out for those who are holier than God. He starts out and talks about apostates, people who are wandering away, falling away from following after God. He says they will be deceived by lying spirits. How are they falling away? By listening to man's wisdom, behind which Satan and his demons stand. I don't think he's saying that every person who wanders away from faith is demon-possessed, has had a demon talk to them, or Satan is personally and specifically oppressing that person. What he is saying is, when we listen to the wisdom of the world in contrast to God's wisdom, God stands behind God's wisdom, Satan stands behind worldly wisdom. When we're deceived by worldly wisdom, it is a doctrine of demon, it is a lying spirit, it is something that is leading us astray from God. The line is picked up again in verse 2 by the means of hypocrisy of liars. And what's the sort of test of going astray from this section. It is people who forbid what God has said is good. People who forbid what God has said is good. 
It says men who forbid marriage and say don't eat these foods that God has created. This was a problem in Paul's day. There were people who said things like the body is evil, marriage is evil, if you want to really be holy, don't be married, go off and live by yourself and only pray and avoid all people. Here's the problem with that mindset. Sin follows you wherever you are because it's an inside problem, not an outside problem. So Martin Luther and many other people found this, people who were monks and devout people. You could go as far as you wanted from other people and be as alone as you tried to be, and you would still have problems with things like lust and pride and anger and all those sorts of things. Now, are there more opportunities to manifest those things around lots of people? Sure, but the further you go, it does, it's not like it completely goes away. Because the problem is within us, and it has to be dealt with from within, and God is the one who does that. But there are people who say the path to godliness is not doing this thing. Here's what God said. Marriage is good, and here are the boundaries of it, and stay within those boundaries, and God is pleased with you getting married and, and all that sort of thing. And they've said, no, even marriage is not good. They've gone beyond even what God has said, and in their going beyond what God has said, they abandoned what is actually true. Or God said, here's food. Now, is it possible to love food too much? Yes. Gluttony is a thing, and that can be either an obsession about really small amounts of food or an obsession about having lots of food. That is a sin, but there's people who said, here's the really specific list of what you can and can't eat, and if you, don't, if you violate this list, God's not pleased with you, you're not walking with God, that sort of thing. What's the problem with this? We think that having more rules means we are closer to God. Well, if not getting married, but behaving as though you're married is bad, and if cheating on your spouse is bad, then maybe even marriage is bad too. And let's make this really, really strict rule. No one should get married. People who teach the Bible, they shouldn't be married. And people who are really devoted to God, they shouldn't be married. But in going beyond what God has actually said, we end up sinning. Think about this from the Garden of Eden. What did God say to Adam? Don't eat from the tree. What did Adam say to Eve? Don't eat from it or touch it. Did adding and don't touch it keep them from eating? No. Because then they got worried about the touching and they ended up eating and touching it and they ended up disobeying God more. If they had focused specifically on what God had said, perhaps things would have turned out differently. What is God calling us to instead? Disciplining ourselves for godliness. Instead of saying, here's what God has said, let's add a whole bunch of extra rules to it. He said, let's follow in a diligent, disciplined way what God has actually said. Because that has benefits for now and for eternity. So in verses 6 and 7, he says, cling to the truth and reject fables, myths, false ideas. Discipline yourself toward godliness. What does this look like? It means there's going to be moments when you don't want to pray, but you really need to pray. There's going to be moments when you don't want to take the work that it do the work that it takes to think about what the Bible has said because maybe it's hard to understand. Why do I say there's things that are hard to understand in the Bible? 
because Peter said that about Paul. He said Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, which means it's going to take work to understand them, and it's going to take time to understand them. And we live in a society that is kind of like, if I can't get it between 2 to 6 p.m. from Prime, it's not worth getting. And if I can't have it in 30 seconds through the drive-thru, it's not worth eating. And the reality is, Sometimes waiting is a really good thing for us, and sometimes hard work is a really good thing for us. And Paul says to Timothy, do the hard work. Not chasing after all the things other people have added to what God has said, but do the hard work of pursuing what God has specifically said. Why? Because you can go to the gym and work out and be stronger, and that's good for you. But there comes a point when you have diminishing returns, right? You go to the gym and you try to lift something, you end up tearing something in your knee or in your arm or whatever else. And sometimes that's due to age and sometimes that's due to the fact that you've just hit your limit. Bodily exercise has profit, but it's only for a short time period, even for a short time period of while we're alive. I was out mowing the lawn. I have a mower that I walk behind, but eventually I'm going to need a mower that I can ride and eventually I'm going to have to pay somebody else to mow the yard, right? Because you get to a point where there's certain things you can't do. Your walk with God, the discipline that you put in in prayer and thinking about God's word and following after God, that has benefit for now and for eternity. Our hope is ultimately in God, not ourselves or in man's words. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance. This is what we labor and strive for. We fixed our hope on the living God. What's the second test of whether we're missing the point? The first one was do our conversations lead toward love and drawing closer to God or to pride, disunity, and focusing on ourselves? The second one is do we add to what God has said? Maybe with good motives. We're trying not to sin, so we're going to add all these other things to it. But in the end, we end up following our own rules instead of God's. Are we potentially wandering into pointless fables or working hard at the things God has specifically called us to do? Chapter 6 shows us the different end of these two paths. Chapter 6, I think, is making this point. Stop following God to get something. Pursue God with the goal of love. Don't try to be holier than God has called you to be. And stop following God to get something. He talks about this process of wandering in verses 3 through 5. What does it start? It starts with rejecting the truth as revealed by God through the apostles. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of Jesus Christ, and doctrine conforming to godliness, what is connected with that? He is conceited and understands nothing. So it starts by rejecting the truth. It is characterized by pride and ignorance leading to constant arguments and comparisons in verse 4, manifested in various sins like envy and strife and speaking abusively toward people and being suspicious of other people and constant friction. And it leads to attacking people who disagree with you, which leads to disunity. And all of this is on the basis of evil desires and thinking that godliness is supposed to get you something. What does this look like? It looks like 
the guy who says, send me a hundred bucks and I'll pray for you and God will fix all the problems in your life. You know, the guy that has the private jet and the three mansions and the 18 sports cars. And I'm not saying that because I'm jealous. I'm saying that because someone whose life and ministry is built on, hey, I could pray for you, but I won't unless you pay me, is not really concerned about ministering and serving to God. In much the same way that corporations are like, well, we'll donate to help people with cancer if you buy our cereal. They're, they're wanting to look good. They're not actually concerned about fixing the problem. My point is to say this. There are many different ways in which we can follow God to get something. Um, my daughter Maggie had a brain tumor five years ago. If I wasn't following God and then now my child is sick and I said, God, I'll follow you if you make her better, I'd be following God to get something, right? Is it wrong to ask God to intervene? No. But sometimes God says no. Sometimes your child doesn't get better. And you can plead and ask with God, and sometimes, like with David, God says no. Sometimes we can follow God to get something because we're having some problem in our life that's not about health. Maybe it's about conflict with other people. Maybe we need money, whatever else. We think, if I follow you, God, then you will fill in the blank. God wants you to follow him regardless of whether he fixes all your problems. Regardless of whether he makes the person you're praying for better regardless of whether it makes your life easier because you follow him. Because in many cases, let's be honest, following God makes your life harder. There's two diverging paths. One is to say, I'm going to reject God's truth, be proud, attack people who disagree with me, and keep chasing after whatever I can get using godliness as a disguise for my evil desires. The other path is what he lays out in verses 6 through 10. Godliness through contentment that points you to Jesus. You're, you are content that you have Jesus. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That's not the attitude that we're encouraged to have in our society today. We're encouraged to say, hey, you got a car, you need a better car. you got a garage, you need to build a, a second garage. You've got a nice house, you need a bigger house. You've got these clothes, you need different and better clothes. You've got shoes, you need 10 more pairs. You've got whatever it is. Our society pressures us to say, if we have more things, we will be more happy. But I'm sure you found, as I found, that getting the next thing doesn't make you happier. because it breaks, because it's not as good as you thought it was going to be, because you were in love with the idea of the thing rather than the thing itself. There's any, any number of realities, but sometimes we believe the lie that if we had more things, we would be happier. 
Sometimes we believe the lie that if our circumstances just changed, we would be happier. I don't like my job, I need a different job. I don't like my spouse, I need a different spouse. I don't like my kids, I wish I had different kids. Do you know what the reality is? You wouldn't be happier. Because the problem is not ultimately all the things around you, the problem is within. Godliness with contentment that says, if I have a relationship with Jesus, even if nothing else in my life is going right, that is enough and I can be content with it. And if I have basic needs met, like food and shelter, I can thank God for that. And sometimes, Paul, who's writing this to Timothy, wrote in the book of Philippians, sometimes you don't even have that. He says, there's been times when I've been hungry and I was sleeping out in the cold and God was still taking care of me and I still was able to walk with him and have a relationship with him. Paul says, don't try to solve your problems in life chasing riches after selfish ambition instead of pursuing godliness through contentment. Instead, he says in verse 11, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Pursue the fruit of the Spirit as a good soldier in obedience to God as you keep pressing on toward eternal life. And then at the very end of the book, he has this one final warning. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you at avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Watch out for empty things that are going to waylay you on the path for following after God. Don't miss the point. How do we know if we're missing the point? Does your conversation lead to love and unity centered on what God has actually said? For example, 1 Timothy 2 says God wants you to pray for sinners. If a sinner misquotes a Bible verse, does a sinful thing, what's your focus? Do you focus on what they did wrong or said wrong? Or do you pray for their salvation and point them to Jesus? If a professing Christian seems to be going astray, do you start evaluating, well, maybe he's not a Christian. Is he a Christian? I don't know what I've seen in his life. I'm not really sure. Maybe God doesn't want you to stand over here and say, I'm going to evaluate your spiritual status. God wants you to go to that person that seems to be wandering away from God and say, what can I do to help you? Galatians 6, you see the one who's struggling, come alongside, watching out for the temptation so you don't get caught up in it too, but come alongside, bearing that burden of sin by God's grace so that it's not, well, I'm going to say over here and say, here's all the problems you're having. What do I think about them? It's I'm going to get right in there and try to help you with them. Be the means of God's grace to call that person back. God wants you to spend time in prayer and fellowship around his word with other Christians. When you do that, do you spend most of your time talking about God and what he's doing in your life and ministry opportunities that you're getting? Or do a lot of your conversations with people focus on the arguments that the world gets tangled up in? There are many things that can consume our time. There is so much information we could never consume at all. I saw this video. I heard this idea. Did you see what happened in this place around the world? And we can just get bogged down in all of those sorts of things instead of saying, when I am talking with a fellow Christian, there is a unique opportunity for me to focus on what really matters. What has God called me to do in the world? How can I help this person draw closer to Jesus? Don't miss the point of what God's calling you to do. Use the Bible the way that God meant it to be used. Learn about God from the Bible. Learn about what he's called us to do from the Bible. There is the reality that no matter how much you study it, there's going to be things you don't know. No matter how many 
systematic theology books you've read or whatever else, it's not going to all perfectly fit together in your mind because if it did, you would be God. God's the one who understands how all of it fits together. You and I don't, and sometimes we get so tangled up, especially if we've been in church a long time, especially if we've heard lots of truth, we get so consumed with really specific nuances. I was having a conversation with some guys on Friday um, at uh, the seminary where I attended, and they got into this discussion about all these things that people are arguing about about the Trinity. Like, was it just Jesus that came down and dwelled on earth as a man? Or did all of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit sort of come down? And that's not really a probably the accurate assessment of all the things they were going into. But I was just saying, in my mind I was thinking, I understand this is seminary, I understand this is a seminary event, and it's seminary people hanging out, but wouldn't it be so much better if we were having a conversation about here's this person that I was telling about Jesus and here's something that's going on in my church, would you pray for about it and all that sort of thing. It's so easy for us to get tangled up in arguments and the reality is a lot of the people that come up with these arguments aren't following God anyway. So to the extent that we're trying to solve these problems that other people have brought off, Satan can use that as distractions from the main point of what God is calling us to do which is to walk in love do exactly what God has said and go down the path of contentment in our walk with God instead of chasing after all these other things and trying to get things from God. Use the Bible the way God meant it to be used, not as a springboard for arguments. So that's the first test. Do your conversations lead to love and a focus on God or pride and a focus on you? Secondly, do your conversations show that you are adding to God's commands based on your own speculation of what God might want? For example, God said to avoid actual sins. Things like lust, drunkenness, hating people around us without cause, all those sorts of things. But in the context of the church, what do we tend to do? We pick on external compliance kind of things. So-and-so didn't wear a tie last week. Maybe he doesn't love Jesus. Hey, I walked by somebody's car and something about the music, I'm like, I don't know. Somebody was talking about God, and when they should have used the word sanctification, they didn't use the word sanctification. They said something like walking with God in holiness, or they just said, hey, I need to follow Jesus. And they're like, maybe they don't really understand that important doctrine, because they didn't say it quite the right way. I'm not saying words don't matter. I'm not saying theology isn't important. I'm saying the standards that we set up to evaluate whether people really love Jesus often tend to be really superficial things. If you and I come up with a list of things to evaluate people that's outside of Scripture, then we're doing just like, and or at least coming dangerously close to those people who said, you know what, God said marriage is good, but I'm not really sure marriage is good. Maybe here's all these extra things that we need to follow. Or God said this food is good, and they're like, well, maybe not. Maybe if you eat this food, you don't really love God. Maybe... If you only go to church once a week, you don't love God. If you go to church three times a week, that's okay. No, that's not enough. Well, we've got to do five times a week. It is so easy for us to add all these things to what God has said. And then we end up obeying our own rules instead of God's. That always happens. The Pharisees said, we want to be holy. And they got to this weird sort of hypocrisy that said, here's the widow starving next door to me but I have one ounce of allspice and I tithed a tenth of an ounce so God is happy with me. And we can have that same sort of precision about a really minor point 
while ignoring the really big point. God wants me to pray with my family. Well, I'm too busy trying to understand exactly what this word means or what this new theory is. We need to hold the line on exactly what God has said. And then this last little part in chapter 6. How does the process of wandering show up in your life? When we start to veer off course from what God has specifically said, when we're characterized by an attitude of pride, when we find ourselves constantly getting into arguments about people instead of saying, here's Jesus, walk with him, love him, I know him and I want you to know him too, we're usually on the course of following God to get something for ourselves. Recognition, money, whatever. And that's the characteristic of false teachers and false religions. Make your God happy, you get what you want. God calls us instead to a life of sacrifice and service. If we have our basic needs met, great. We're not trying to get rich off people. We don't need their approval and recognition. We don't need control over them. Our goal is to serve the people around us on the mission he's called us to until he comes back or we go to him. And so when it comes to the things that we encounter in life, whether it be specific words or phrases in a passage in the Bible that you're reading, or even the way that we spend our time as we go throughout life, I think God says, don't miss the point. He's making a point in whatever that section of scripture is that you're reading. Figure out what it is. He's calling you to do something in that situation in which you find yourself. Figure out what it is. Don't get distracted. Don't get off course. Don't wander away. Don't miss the point. Let's pray. Father, I know we covered a lot of ground this morning, and I don't think it came out as clearly as I had hoped, especially at the beginning. But we know that your word is powerful and you can accomplish what it is that you want us to. You can change our hearts the way that you want to. You can convict us or encourage us or help us. I pray, Lord, that you will use your word in a way that accomplishes your intention for it. You have shown us who you are in the Bible. You've shown us that on our own we're sinners, that Jesus is perfect, that he died so sinners could be in a relationship with you and walk after you. I pray that we would not miss that really important central point and that we would live the way that you're calling us to live, not in our own strength, but by your power so that you would be honored. We pray this in Christ's name.